From time to time, I do weddings, and there's a spirit of forever love in the air. This couple stands before their family, their friends, and most importantly, before God. And they're setting out to prove to the world that there has never been two people more in love than them. So I share with them and the people assembled how to strengthen their love so they could be more in love with each other 25 years from now than they are today. I warn the couple, be careful. Be careful of not letting the sin of the familiar rob you of the love that you have for each other. Now, you know what the sin of the familiar is, right? It, it's getting so used to having the other person around that you begin to neglect them. You begin to forget what an amazing gift from God they are. You stop talking, you stop listening, and you start drifting because you aren't paying attention to your relationship. We, we see the sin of the familiar oftentimes in marriages. A, a dietician was addressing a large audience in Chicago. He said, the material we put in our stomach is enough to have killed most of us sitting here years ago. Red meat is awful. Soft drinks erode your stomach lining. Chinese food is loaded with MSG. Vegetables can be disastrous. And none of us realize the long-term harm caused by the germs in our drinking water. But there is one thing that's the most dangerous of all, and we, can, we will have had or we will eat it at some point in time for most of us in our lives. Can anyone here tell me what food it is that causes the most grief and suffering for years after eating it? 75-year-old man in the front row stood up and said, wedding cake. That, my friend, is the sin of the familiar. We have the sin of the familiar with our kids. We get so used to them being around that we begin to neglect them as well. What's going on on the TV is more important than what's going on in their life. Listening to the radio becomes more important than listening to them. We forget that we only have our children for a little while and then thank God they move out. I, I mean, they move on and have families of their own. We do this in our marriages. We do this in our parenting. We even let the sin of the familiar creep into our relationship with God. We start going through the motions. We stop praying. We stop seeking Him. And we forget. We forget about the price that was paid so that we might have an abundant life on this earth and eternal life in heaven. Well, today is Black Friday. And today we're thinking about what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And some of us have heard the story so many times, or you've heard bits and pieces of what happened to Jesus, that in some ways, his death has lost its impact in your life. On the day that Jesus was crucified, there were soldiers that were there that were unmoved by Jesus's death. They fell victim to the sin of the familiar. Friends, it was a typical day when Jesus was sentenced to be crucified in the eyes of the soldiers who crucified him. In their minds, another Jew had overstepped his bounds and threatened his, the Roman authorities. His punishment would be like all the others, death by means of crucifixion. You see, Jesus wasn't the first person to be crucified. Anytime someone led a revolt against Rome, Rome would come down hard on that person or the persons responsible. When Jesus was a teenager, there was a Jewish rebellion against Rome in a town near where Jesus lived. The Roman army crushed the rebellion, and to make sure it never happened again, they crucified every person who had any involvement in the uprising. Over 1,600 people were crucified in a stretch of about 10 miles. About every 10 yards, friends, another person was dying an awful death. 
The first century historian Josephus says there were times when the rebellions in Israel got so ramped up where the Romans would crucify more than 500 Israelites a day. Josephus said there were so many crucifixions that they ran out of space for the crosses and they ran out of crosses for the bodies. These soldiers that were there that day were used to crucifying people. It was a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. There was a show that used to be on TV called Dirty Jobs. Do you remember that show? Mike Rowe was the host, and for one day he would do the job that nobody wants to do. He was asked what are the three dirtiest jobs that are out there. Here's what he said. He said, the worst job is a renderer. A renderer is the unpleasant process where dead animals are recycled into products like chicken feed and biodiesel. Rendering plants are loaded with carcasses and animal remains. Mike said it's a bloodbath. The smell is indescribable. But he says the finished product is something really valuable. Basically, all leather products come from dead livestock, and they have to go through this process of rendering. He said the second one was a lift pump replacement technician. This person's job is at the water wastewater management plant, and his job is to wade through or sometimes swim through human waste and fix the broken lift pump with a new one. He said the third worst job is an animal bone charrer. This person chars animal bones into granular material that's used in all kinds of lubricants and in cosmetics. It's also used to remove fluoride from water and to filter aquarium water. Now, those are some dirty jobs, but is there a dirtier job than crucifying people? They heard the screams before. They heard the cries for mercy. It would just be a matter of time before the person being crucified would finally breathe their last breath, and then they could just go home for supper. They got used to it, and their focus wasn't on the person dying anyway. Their focus was on what the condemned person owned. In Jesus' case, it was an undergarment. John chapter 19, verse 23 and 24 says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. The undergarment was like a t-shirt that went on Jesus's shoulders to under his knees. It was the only thing of value that Jesus had. So the soldiers gambled for Jesus's clothing. Now, a lot of people don't see Jesus clearly today because their focus is on the stuff of this world. You know, making a name for themselves, building the little kingdom of mud that's here today and gone tomorrow. I read a story the other day about a Texas man who died hit by a car while chasing his hat that had blown out onto a highway. Happened all the way back in 1983. His name was Dan Compton. He was only 29 years old. Now, we hear a story like that and we think how tragic, and no doubt it was. He died because he chased after a $20 hat. Hearing that story, though, got me thinking, is there anything in my life that I'm pursuing that isn't worth the effort? Gosh, is there anything in my life that's distracted me from making God's name great and building up his kingdom? Many of us are spending so much time focused on being like the Joneses that we don't have enough time to focus on being like Jesus. What gets me about these soldiers is they're at the foot of the cross where the sins of all mankind are being paid for, and they're missing it. They're missing it. 
because they're focused on something else. If they would just stop and focus on Jesus, if they would just slow down and they would listen to what's happening around them, everything in their life could change for the better. They're focused on a garment when they should be focused on the Savior of the world. Friends, I don't want you to make the same mistake. I don't want you to miss the significance of what Jesus went through so you and I could be forgiven of our sin. I don't want the sin of the familiar to callous your soul where you're no longer moved by the cross like these soldiers because that's Jesus dying in your place. That's Jesus taking on your sin. So let's focus on the cross. Kyle Eidelman writes that the cross was a symbol of humiliation. In the ancient world, the Romans had a number of ways to carry out an execution. They knew how to execute people very cheaply. Some people would be executed by fire, others would be stoned, still others would be killed with the stroke of the sword. They might even just give a person a drink of hemlock. Crucifixion, though, on the other hand, required four soldiers and a centurion to oversee it. It was a much more expensive deal. So why crucifixion? Well, they would use it when they wanted to publicly humiliate the person being crucified. They wanted to make a public statement that this person has no power and is nothing. We read in Scripture how the soldiers humiliated and mocked Jesus. They spit on him. The Bible says he was crucified naked on a cross. Before crucifying a criminal, it was common for the Romans to beat them like they beat Jesus. For this scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied most often to an upright post. The idea was that a person would have to have their hands tied around a post so that the flesh on their body would be stretched out tightly in preparation for the scourging, for the whipping. The number of lashes wasn't what the Romans paid attention to. They were experts in being a person just as close to the edge of death as they could. And after being beaten beyond recognition, the Roman soldiers put the horizontal beam on the cross on Jesus's back. Perhaps some of the vertebrae were exposed from the flogging. This 125 pound beam was placed on his open wounds. It's no wonder that Jesus had a difficult time carrying the cross as he stumbled down the narrow road. When Jesus got to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the nails securing Christ's arms to the cross were driven through the wrist, not his palms. The palms could not withstand the weight of the body. The hands would tear through long ways. Instead, the nails were placed precisely, driven precisely into the space between the wrist bones. These were dislocated, but not shattered. An important nerve, the median, crosses the wrist joint. The square-edged nails almost always came into contact with this nerve, stretching it over the sharp sides of the nail like the strings over the bridge of a musical instrument. This caused such severe cramping in the thumb that it bent across the palm so violently that the thumbnail embedded itself in the flesh. The next step was to hoist Jesus and slot the cross piece onto the vertical stem. Then with his knees bent until the sole of one foot could be pressed flat against the cross, another nail was driven through it, precisely in the middle between the second and third metatarsal bones. As soon as the nails emerged to the sole, the other leg was bent into position so that the same nail could be hammered through the second foot and into the wood. 
Jesus was then left to hang from the three nails. A body suspended by the wrist was sagged downwards, pulled by gravity. This produces enormous tension in the muscles of the arms, shoulders, and chest wall. The ribs are drawn upward so that the chest is fixed in position as if the victim has just drawn a large breath but can't breathe out. Jesus begins to stifle. The severely strained arms, shoulders, and chest muscles developed agonizing cramps. The metabolic rate is raised, but the oxygen supply is reduced. Jesus is now having difficulty breathing and in ridding the body of carbon dioxide. The Romans didn't want a swift death. That's why they nailed his feet too. Jesus could buy time by pushing himself up on the nail in his feet, stretching his legs, and so raising his body to relieve his chest and his arms. This allowed him to breathe better, but just for a little while. But perching with the full weight of the body on a square nail driven through the middle bones of the feet brings intolerable pain. Jesus' knees sag until once more he's hanging from his wrist and the median nerves again strung over the nail shafts. And this cycle is repeated to the limit of Jesus' endurance. Excessive sweating from the pain would bring on severe thirst. The blood loss from the flogging reduced his circulation and his blood pressure would fall causing his heart to beat faster. At this point, Jesus' heart would begin to fail and his lungs would fill with fluid. The beginning of the death rattle would begin to be heard in each painful breath until Jesus' heart finally gives out. As awful as that was to hear, the physical abuse that Jesus endured paled in comparison to the weight of all of our sin that was placed on him. At noon, the sky grew dark, and my sin and your sin was placed upon Jesus. This was the moment that Jesus had been dreading. All of our lives, all of our filth, all of our selfishness, all of our hatred and prejudice, all the rape and murder and incest, every despicable thing we've ever done was placed on Him. Jesus, for the first time, felt separation from God. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The depth of loneliness and despair that Jesus felt at this time, we can't even imagine it. Friends, we have nothing, we have nothing in our lives to even compare it to. This is a billion times worse than the worst day that you've ever had. Jesus is paying the price for our wrongs, for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made right with God. The story's told of a, a young lieutenant in World War II whose unit was ambushed by Nazi soldiers. Almost all of them escaped from the flying bullets by running into an old farmhouse. However, out of the darkness came the moans and groans of one of the men who had been severely wounded. The young lieutenant did the heroic thing. He crawled out into the night, grabbed the young recruit, and dragged him to the safety of the farmhouse. He saved the man. But even as he himself was going through the door of safety, he was struck by a bullet to his head, and he was killed instantly. A year or so later, the young man for whom the lieutenant had heroically given his life for was back in the States. The parents of the dead hero asked to meet him. On the appointed night, the soldier came to meet the mother and father of the man who had died for him. But when he arrived at the house where they lived, it was obvious to the parents of the dead hero that he was drunk. They sat at dinner, and they tried to make conversation, but the man was loud and at times obscene. 
And toward the end of the meal, he vomited. The parents did their best they could to make it, you know, their way through the horrendous evening of suffering. When the young soldier left and they closed the door behind them, the mother of the dead hero slumped against the wall and moaned, to think that our precious son had to die for somebody like that. I'm sure that's, uh, that's what the angels in heaven think as well. I'm sure when the angels in heaven look upon the behavior of the likes of someone like me, they must say to one another, to think that our precious son had to die for somebody like that. But Jesus did die for us, didn't he? In spite of our sin, in spite of our inconsistencies, in spite of our hypocrisy and broken promises, Jesus died for our sin so that we could be free from guilt and shame. Jesus died for our sins so that we could have a close and intimate relationship with God. Now, do you understand a little better what he did for you and me? We owe God a sin debt, a sin debt that was so great there was no way we could pay that sin debt on our own. So Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He did all of that because he loves you and he wants to have the, you to have the best life that you could have on this earth and eternal life with him in heaven. Do you know Jesus? I did not ask you if you know about Jesus. I want to know, do you know him? Do you love him? Do you talk to him? Do you do life together with him? Jesus is extending his nail-scarred hand out to you today. He wants to forgive you and give you a new lease on life. And he will never leave you or turn his back on you. He loves you more than you'll ever know. And he still believes in you. He still sees things in you that you don't even see in yourself. So if you'd like to talk to someone about what it is to have a real relationship with a real God who really does care about you, you can call us or text us at 505-922-9200. Friends, we were made by God and for God to have a relationship with Him. Please call or text us now.